0: What's up? You said you had something to, uh, about the case to tell me? Yeah, dude, you're not gonna believe this. So, I was scrolling through Grindr the other day, and you'll never fucking believe who I saw. Okay, who? Tell me. That fucking boyfriend of the missing girl, what's his name? Isaac? Isaac, yeah, that's him. Are you sure that's him? I'll send you a screenshot, man. Isaac is on Grindr. So, Isaac is gay? Don't know why else you'd be on Grindr, dude. Welcome to Dead of the Night, an investigative podcast looking into the disappearance of Devin Riesling, a 23-year-old nursing student who disappeared on February 9, 2019. On our last episode, we looked into Isaac, Devin's boyfriend and high school sweetheart, who was in the area where Devin's car would later be found on the night she disappeared, and who was seen washing his car the following day. We also tracked down the rumors surrounding a white van in connection to Devin's disappearance. We left off the last two episodes with a couple of bombshells, First, Isaac's brother, John, drives a white van like the one Patty claimed was following Devin around in the weeks before her disappearance. Second, that Isaac had a secret.
1: All right, do you have both of them printed?
0: Yeah, um... So, this one is Isaac's profile image on Grinder, and this one is the image we used for Devin's missing persons poster.
1: It's... Holy fucking shit, it's literally the same picture.
0: Yeah, if you overlay them, um, you can actually see where they overlap, and it, it...
1: Oh my god.
0: Basically, what Isaac did is he cropped out his missing girlfriend, and then used that image on his Grinder profile, which is really, really messed oh, up.
1: Uh, yeah, no, no, that's definitely creepy. That's that's fucking weird.
0: The big question was how long had Isaac been on Grinder? and whether or not Devin knew about Isaac's apparent attraction to men. I couldn't help but wonder if this was a possible motive. Maybe Devin found out that Isaac had been cheating on her with men, or even threatened to out him to his extremely conservative and religious family. I wanted to get more perspective on this, so I shared what I had found with Brett Nelson, who, just to remind you, is the private investigator hired by Devin's brother TJ. So he's gay, huh? Or bisexual. Maybe. I I don't want to assume anything. Okay, that's interesting. I can see the gear shifting in your head.
2: It's very curious, isn't it? Isaac having a secret double life, something he was clearly hiding from everyone who knew him.
0: Yeah, and isn't his family extremely religious?
2: They're members of the First Baptist Church, which is a fundamentalist church
0: so I'm guessing they probably would not be happy about their son being gay.
2: He would definitely have good reason to want to hide this information.
0: So this this could be a motive, right? Everything I find out about this guy just makes him look more and more suspicious. He even had access to a white van. We still don't
2: know for sure if Devin was even being followed by a white van. Patty was the only one who ever claimed she was being followed, and Patty was not a reliable witness.
0: Yeah, okay... Are you trying to tell me I'm getting ahead of myself again? You might
2: be jumping the gun a bit. That's fair. I've been a private investigator for years, and before that, I was in the district attorney's office. And if there's one thing I've learned, it's to not get tunnel vision.
0: (sighs) Yeah. Yeah, okay.
2: So, my advice to you would be to expand your search.
0: So, you mean look for other suspects? Exactly. Okay. All right. Thanks for keeping me grounded, Brett. No problem.
2: Hi, I'm calling about the Devin Reason case. I was wondering if you guys looked into a woman named Dorothy Rogers. Her and her husband, Mike, were involved in a disappearance in Emmett back in the 70s. And there's said to be evidence that they killed and dismembered this woman and fed her body to pigs. So I just thought this would be something that y'all might want to follow up on. And I want to say thank you for bringing Devin's case into the light. I think it's criminal that the cops are not taking this seriously. So thank you all for your guys' hard work.
1: Police are investigating a possible serial killer who grew up in Emmett. Dorothy and Mike were involved in satanic activity. I know that Dorothy and Mike killed my mother. Authorities say Marie, back then, would disappear for many days at a time, so it took a while for them to realize that it was a homicide.
0: We warn you, what you're about to hear may be disturbing. Before I begin, I want to warn listeners that this story involves ritual child abuse, sexual assault, and graphic details about dismemberment and murder. I also want to thank thin air podcast who provided much of the research for this case if you want to know more i highly highly recommend listening to their three-part series about this case which includes interviews and eyewitness testimony again that podcast is called thin air podcast specifically episodes two three and five i'm going to start at the beginning in november of 1977 in emmett idaho Dorothy Rogers was the last person to see 27-year-old Marie Ann Watson alive, just two days before a custody hearing in which Marie was likely to regain custody of her two children, who had been in Dorothy's care. Marie had struggled with drug addiction and had temporarily given Dorothy, who was reportedly Marie's aunt, custody of her 8- and 6-year-old while she got her life together and regained some stability. According to Dorothy, on November 21, 1977, Her and Marie were driving together to pick up some medical records for her children in the nearby city of Ontario. When their car became stuck in a snowbank on the side of the road, Dorothy claims that a black car pulled in front of them, presumably to help them get out from the snow, when Marie got out of the car and started talking to the strange man. Dorothy claims that Marie got into this stranger's car and they drove away, never to be seen again. Dorothy never filed a missing person's report, but Marie's then-husband did file one. Her car, including her purse and wallet, was later found parked in the lot of a local cafe in Emmett. The police would not investigate Marie's disappearance until decades later. To this day, the Gem County Police Department refused to release the case file, but a source at the Idaho State Police claims that it's only a single page long and not particularly helpful anyway. Many theorize that Marie's disappearance was not investigated because of her reputation as a drug user and a prostitute. But considering their treatment of Devin Riesling's disappearance, it's hard not to think that failing to investigate missing persons cases is simply the modus operandi of the Gem County Police. Regardless of the reason, the police's failure to act was a huge oversight, especially with the rampant rumors and reports of ritualistic child abuse. That had surrounded the Rogers family for nearly a decade. Over the years, the Rogers family had reportedly taken in up to 17 children into their home children that were runaways, homeless, or unwanted children, which Dorothy called her street kids. At the time of Marie's disappearance, there were seven kids living in the home, including Marie's son and daughter, but Mike and Dorothy were never officially registered as foster parents. The oldest of these children was 17-year-old Raymond Rogers. Raymond's foster siblings included Kevin, age 15, Rocky, age 13, John, who is Marie's son, age 8, Kathleen, age 13, Michelle, age 9, and Sandy, Marie's daughter, age 6. Several of these foster siblings have since passed away. Others want nothing to do with this investigation. But Marie's daughter, Sandy, is still advocating for her mother's case to get solved and a lot of what we know about this case comes from her eyewitness testimony, much of which you can hear in the Thin Air podcast episodes. Sandy and her foster siblings suffered from extreme abuse from the hands of Dorothy and Mike, abuse that police turned a blind eye towards for years. One report tells of one of the foster boys being chained to a box for days on end until he was able to escape by jumping out a second story window but law enforcement took the boy back to the Rogers house and failed to file the report. Call CPS or do anything at all. Many of the children were burned, badly beaten, chained to furniture, had feces smeared on their faces, or buckets of blood poured over them. One year after Marie's disappearance, Mike Rogers raped his 14-year-old foster daughter Kathleen, who became pregnant. In a jealous rage, Dorothy kicked Kathleen in the stomach until she miscarried. Mike would later serve three years in prison for this rape, which he managed to plead down into a single charge of incest, despite the fact that Kathleen wasn't actually related to Mike. This three-year sentence for Mike Kathleen's rape would be the only time Mike would serve in prison for the abuse he subjected the vulnerable children in his care to. Most of what we know about the abuse in the Rogers home comes from Sandy, who is fairly open about her experiences with the media. Sandy describes how she was forced to eat dog food on the ground and sleep on a pile of rags on the floor like the dogs. Dorothy regularly strangled and tried to drown her and shocked her with an electric fence. She was whipped, burned with cigarettes, dragged by the hair, and was even dragged behind the car a few times. Mike and his friends would regularly rape her during parties that Mike would host for the purpose of sexually abusing their foster children. But, perhaps worse than the abuse and torture Sandy was forced to endure, was what she had witnessed Mike and Dorothy do to her mother, Marie Watson. Though she was just six years old at the time, Sandy clearly remembers Mike carrying Marie's limp body into the Rogers' home. Sandy witnessed Mike, Dorothy, and two unknown men dismembering her mother's body and feeding her remains to the pigs. One of the other foster siblings, Kevin, also witnessed Marie in the Rogers home days after her disappearance. You're probably wondering how, with two eyewitness testimonies to Marie's murder, there wasn't a proper investigation into Marie's case. Why no detectives interviewed the foster children at the time, why there were no warrants to look for the physical evidence that Sandy claims was in plain sight around the home. Unfortunately, the answer to that question is infuriating. Gem County Police didn't investigate because they were scared of Mike Rogers. They reportedly did dispatch someone to the Rogers property, but promptly drove off when they saw Mike brandishing a gun, never to return again. Marie's husband and parents hired a private investigator to look into Dorothy and Mike, and when the P.I. began finding out evidence about the abuse going on in the home, specifically about Kathleen's rape, Mike and Dorothy fled town. They took with them four of their foster children as they fled across the country, hiding out in remote areas. Everywhere that Mike and Dorothy went during their time underground, vulnerable children in the area ended up missing or dead. The PI investigating the case goes as far as calling Mike and Dorothy serial killers. Sandy remembers Mike and Dorothy strangling young boys in front of her and dumping buckets of blood on them. To quote Sandy, they did terrible things to little boys, end quote. But unfortunately, Sandy either doesn't know or hasn't publicly released the names of these additional victims. There's a lot more to this story that we don't have time to go into on this podcast. But to quickly summarize, after a long search for Mike and Dorothy and the kids, the PI finally found them and the children were removed from their custody. Mike was imprisoned for the incest charge, but Dorothy was never charged for anything. Her and Mike eventually divorced, and no progress would be made on the case for almost two decades until an unrelated case in San Diego would bring new light to Marie's disappearance and lead to the discovery of new evidence.
1: San Diego police describe a gruesome story surrounding Ramon Rogers. The former Emmett, Idaho resident is accused of murdering his girlfriend and has been implicated in at least two other murders. More clues to what Rogers is accused of doing could be buried in the home he grew up in and the mystery of a missing woman.
2: Rumors about what's buried in the foundation of the old Rogers' foster home have been circulating Emmett for 19 years.
1: They are not going to find no bones.
2: Jim County detectives believe there are bones buried under the home. The bones of Marie Ann Watson, who disappeared in late 1977 during a custody battle with Dorothy and Mike Rogers.
3: The FBI spent the early evening hours using sophisticated ground penetrating radar on the concrete slab.
1: This green t-shirt is the gem investigators were hoping to find. Detectives say they have reports that Marie Watson was wearing a green t-shirt and jeans when she disappeared 19 years ago. Investigators say the shirt they found has a reddish-brown substance on it that could be blood. In the search, investigators did find one bone that was sawed off, which they say fits with Baxter's testimony that Marie Watson was dismembered.
0: Nineteen years after the disappearance of Marie Ann Watson, a series of unrelated murders would shed new light on her case. Raymond Roger, the oldest of the Rogers' foster children, was charged with three murders in San Diego in 1996. Finally, nineteen years after the disappearance of Marie Watson, investigators started to believe that Mike and Dorothy were involved in something so dark and sinister that their oldest foster son would grow up to emulate their actions. In 1996, investigators obtained a search warrant for the Rogers property which was now legally owned by Raymond Roger and was where Dorothy Rogers was still living. Ground penetrating radar revealed abnormalities underneath the foundations of the home which had been poured around the same time as Marie's disappearance. Detectives recovered several shocking things. First, a green t-shirt stained with a red-brown substance that looked like blood. The same t-shirt that witnesses say Marie was wearing the day she went missing. Second, detectives found bones. A lot of them. So many bones that Sandy claims the investigator stopped looking after the third garbage bag. Most of the bones were in fragments and it became clear that if any of the bones were human, they were mixed with animal bones. At least one of the fragments, which investigators believed was a human shin bone, appeared to be sawed off which matched Sandy's description of her mother's body being dismembered with saws. In this case, the sheer amount of bones that were found on the Rogers property actually became a deterrent to investigators. Separating the human from animal bones would be an expensive and time-consuming process that would need to be overseen by expert anthropologists. In the end, only a few fragments were chosen to be tested, and all the tests came back as inconclusive meaning they were not able to collect DNA from the samples or even verify if the bones were indeed human. A distinction that was particularly important because the Rogers were known to butcher animals on their property frequently, and even had an open pit used to butcher animals inside their kitchen. Since the 1996 discovery and testing of these bones, no further testing has been done on the findings from under the Rogers' home. These bones were found almost 20 years ago, and DNA technology has considerably improved since. It's extremely possible that DNA evidence proving that the Rogers killed Marie Watson is sitting in an evidence bag at the Gem County Sheriff's Department, right now, as we speak. But the police refuse to retest the evidence, and even refuse to release the evidence for private testing, which means that Dorothy and Mike Rogers have still never been charged for the murder of Marie Watson, and never been investigated for the disappearance of dozens of homeless and runaway children that seemed to follow them wherever they went. The oldest foster son went on to murder and dismember three people. So it was hard to believe that Dorothy and Mike had just stopped their pattern of violence, torture and abuse when their foster children were taken from their custody. I couldn't help but wonder if anyone else in their vicinity had gone missing or been killed in the years after Marie's disappearance. Mike Rogers died over the Christmas holiday in late 2018, two months before Devin went missing, but Dorothy Rogers, she was still alive, still alive to this day, and still living in the very area where Devin disappeared on the night of February 9th, 2019. Was it possible? Did Dorothy Rogers strike again? I asked a few of Devon's friends what they thought of this theory.
2: Oh yeah, I know all about Mike and Dorothy. I know that she and her husband had a bunch of runaway kids, and they were Satanists, and did all these crazy rituals on their kids, like pouring blood on them, and she definitely, definitely killed that woman. I heard they fucking ate her, that's what I heard. I'm not trying to accuse anybody of anything, I just wanted to explore any possibility of finding Devin, and Dorothy is still alive. I even heard she brainwashed one of those foster kids and they still live together.
0: I decided to take this theory to Brett and see what he thought about it.
2: I didn't even think of this angle. Really? I knew about the murder, but I thought they both kicked the bucket. Uh, no, not, not Dorothy. Have you checked her public records? Uh, seen what kind of property she's holding, court records? You can still see if she has a, a driver's license. Uh, I, no, I haven't done that yet, but that's a great place to start. Start there and let me know what you find. Uh, okay.
3: A
0: property search uncovered that Dorothy had actually moved a few dozen miles away from Emmett proper. However, her location was actually closer to where Devin's car had been abandoned. So, going into this search, my hopes were high. Which made it so, so much worse when I fell back to Earth upon hearing what I found next. Dorothy had been hospitalized the entire week of February 9th. Which means there is no way she could have been involved in Devin's disappearance. I was back at square one. Still, I was glad to have done so much research about Marie Watson's case. For many years, it was the only open missing persons case in Emmett, until now. And the way the Gem County Police responded to her disappearance said a lot about the way they treat missing persons cases in Emmett and in general. NamUs, the National Missing and Unidentified Persons System, reports that 600,000 people go missing every year in the U.S. Many of these people, and especially missing children, are quickly found, in part due to the fact that all missing children's cases are reported to the FBI's National Crime Information Center. The recovery rates for missing children are pretty good. Over 99% of missing children are found alive. But missing adults are another problem entirely, mostly because it is not illegal for an adult to go missing. It's perfectly legal to walk away from your life, ghost your friends and family, run away, and never be found again. Missing adults over the age of 21 are not automatically reported to the FBI unless they are disabled, the victim of a catastrophe like a natural disaster, or if there is evidence of foul play. For so many missing adults that simply vanish into thin air, their cases never get the attention or resources of the FBI. Many are never entered into NAMAS, never get their faces broadcast on the news, or even put on wanted posters at the local Walmart. Devin Riesling is one of those people. Her case is almost unGoogleable. No news station has ever talked about her disappearance. No investigators have ever been called in. Which is why this podcast is so important to me. I might have chased down another dead end lead, but I wasn't going to give up anytime soon, especially when there was so much more to learn.
1: Hey, uh, I've got some good news for you. Oh,
0: great! Uh, is it is it the cell phone data from Devon's
1: phone? Uh, you better get over here and
2: see for yourself.
0: I hopped in my car and sped all the way to Brett's office in Boise. My mind racing with what we would find on Devin's cell phone: texts, videos, photos, Google search histories. I was dying to know. Brett and I spent the next few hours pouring over the 7.4 gigabytes of information the digital forensics lab scrubbed from Devon's cell phone. All her calls, texts, photos, GPS location history was here, neatly organized in a folder on Brett's desktop, titled, Devin's iPhone. We are looking for anything and everything that could point us to a new suspect, give us a new lead, corroborate a theory, but we focus on the last text she sent before she left her phone at home and disappeared on the night of February 9th. Okay, so Devin and Isaac are texting all morning. They're making plans, they're talking about their day. But so far, there's no mention of a Boiling Springs trip. Nothing. So, what about on previous days? Maybe this was something they talked about earlier in the week.
2: Let me show you something. I can do a search for a keyword. Uh, boiling Springs. No results. Mm. Uh, hot Springs. No results. Mm-hmm. Uh, crouch. Nothing.
0: Huh. So Devon and Isaac never had plans to go to the Hot Springs that night?
2: If they had a plan to meet at the Hot Springs later that night, then they must have talked about it in person, because they certainly didn't mention it over text.
0: Okay, but maybe that was intentional. Like maybe Isaac knew that her texts could be read one day, and he waited to ask her to meet him at the Hot Springs until they were in person.
2: I mean, it's possible. I'm not ready to eliminate him as a person of interest yet, but this definitely doesn't prove anything one way or another.
0: There were a few other things of note in Devin's text and call history. First, she was in contact with a friend of hers in Emmett, who all called Jay. Jay and Devin went to high school together. They're even pictured together in her high school yearbook, both on the debate team. However, Jay does have a reputation around town for being a drug dealer. The texts between Devin and Jay don't indicate that she was one of his customers, so it seems like it was just a normal friendship. Second, Devin's text to her friends and boyfriend indicated that she was struggling to care for her mother she frequently asked people around her for emotional support. She told friends about how Patty would lash out at her or get confused and sometimes even violent, trashing the house or pinching Devin hard enough to leave bruises. Also, Devin often fought with her brother TJ, mostly about money, since he was paying the mortgage on Patty's home and sending them money for groceries and bills, money that Devon felt was never quite enough. Finally, From her text messages with Isaac, it seemed like they had a totally normal relationship. They didn't really argue except for the occasional bickering over cancelled plans or miscommunications. Besides these few items of note, most of the things we found in Devon's cell phone data was exactly what you would expect. Normal conversations with normal friends and family that you'd expect from a 23 year old girl. I made a mental note to speak with Jay, although I sincerely doubt that a small time meth dealer that Devon occasionally met up with for beers had anything to do with her disappearance. But still my leads were starting to run dry. I was running out of clues, running out of things to investigate. Per Jessica's suggestion, I did look into the landowners around the area where Devon's car disappeared. However, all of the land within a 15 mile radius of Boiling Springs is National Forest. There was a small campground called Trail Creek Campground about two miles south of Devon's car, but the campground was closed for the season, which ended in September, and no evidence of Devon was found there. I was so excited to get Devin's cell phone data, I thought it was going to break this case wide open, but yet again, I feel like I'm back at square one.
1: So, how are you feeling?
0: Um, disappointed? I don't know. I thought this was going to be bigger than it was.
1: Mm, It's all part of the job. Ups and downs.
0: What do we do next?
1: We keep working the case.
0: (laughs) I'm gonna need another Dr. Pepper. Here he comes. Ah, uh, I'm scooting down my seat. Hopefully he... He saw me.
3: Oh, fuck. I'm locked the door, dude. Alright. You've been following me for a week, bro. We need to talk. Okay. did you drink? Uh, that's like a week's worth of Dr. Pepper. Is it okay if I record this? Yeah, I definitely want this on record. You outed me to my whole family, dude. I did? You broadcasted the fact that I was on Grindr to the whole fucking world on your podcast. So, I didn't think
0: your family would listen to it. I didn't even consider it's it? Emmett.
3: The last interesting thing that happened here is the fact that Aaron Paul was born here didn't even live here he was just born here and people still talk about it every single day so yeah everyone in the town knows about your fucking podcast
0: okay i didn't even think about that i'm sorry and that this has impacted your life and your relationship with your family but i still feel like it needed to be said i mean it's relevant to this case that nobody else is looking into nobody else is trying to find devon did you ever think maybe devon doesn't want to be found um, no, not really. I mean, if she wanted to leave her life behind, she could have left a note or something. You just don't get it, do you? Get what? Tell me, Isaac, please. I'm begging for answers here. What do you want to know? Were you in the Boiling Springs area the night that Devin went missing?
3: Yes. Were you meeting Devin there? Did something happen, or was it an accident, or- I wasn't meeting Devin, okay? I had no idea she was in the mountains that night. For all I know, she was still home with Patty. So what were you doing there? I was meeting somebody. Not Devin. No, dude, I told you. I wasn't meeting Devin. I was meeting a guy, okay? A guy? I met this guy on Grindr, okay? He lives on a ranch in Garden Valley. His wife was out of town, and I came over that night after I dropped Devin off, and I spent the night.
0: So you never saw Devin again the night after you dropped her off? No. You guys both had to drive the same route up the
3: mountains. Did you see her car anywhere on the way? I didn't see her car anywhere. Did Devin know you were going to meet somebody after you dropped her off? I don't know. I didn't tell her, but I think she could just tell. She kind of caught me checking out a guy a few months earlier. She wanted me to figure out who I was. So you're saying you guys had an open relationship? I mean, it wasn't explicit, we never talked about it, but but it was implied. She wasn't jealous, she was never the jealous type. I loved her for that. So you never wanted to hurt Devin? Never. Were you washing your car the morning after she disappeared? What does that have anything to do with it?
0: Because. Someone saw you washing your car out, like vacuuming the inside and deep cleaning the seats. It seemed a little suspicious.
3: Yeah, I washed my car that day. I didn't even know Devin was missing yet. So why were you washing your car? It was for my boss. Your boss? I had just landed this accounting internship, okay? The partner of my firm, his car was in the shop, and me being the intern, it was my job to chauffeur him around. I was just trying to make a good impression, so I cleaned the shit out of my car.
0: Hmm. Okay.
3: You don't believe me? I mean... Look.
0: Okay. Car's in the shop. I need you to pick me up tomorrow. See? Can you show me the date and time that your boss sent you that? Okay. Okay. 7.39pm on February 9th. I told you. (sighs) Okay. 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 But, what about the search party? Why didn't you cooperate with the investigation? I mean, what kind of person doesn't go to the search party for their
3: own girlfriend? Believe me. I know. It looks bad. I had already turned over my cell phone records before Devin's car was found. For all I know, those records would make me look less suspicious, you know? I thought they would prove I left Devon's house and spent the entire night two hours away. But when her car was found... When her car was found in the exact same area that I was, I freaked out. I knew how bad it made me look. Yeah, really, really bad. One of the guys at my firm is a lawyer, and I asked him what I should do. He just told me to shut up, stop answering questions, and hire an attorney. I don't have any money for an attorney, but I followed the rest of his advice.
0: Yeah, you stopped answering questions. Yeah. But why not come to the search party? Honestly, that was because of work. On a Saturday? You couldn't get the day off to
3: look for your missing, and possibly dead, girlfriend. Look man, January through April 15 is tax season. Which means mandatory overtime. Mandatory Saturdays. I just started internship a few months earlier. Which means I was the office bitch. I had exactly zero sway or influence over my schedule. I couldn't afford to fuck this up.
0: Okay. Alright. But what about your brother, John?
3: What about him? Did he have anything to do with Devin's disappearance? No. Why the fuck would he have anything to do with Devin? He barely knew her. He only met her... twice. Okay.
0: But does he drive a van?
3: Yeah. He has a van for his plumbing business. A white van? Oh, that's what this is about. You know about this? I know that Devin was being followed by a white van. Yeah. I thought you guys knew all about that. It was practically the only thing Patty could talk about. Wait, so that was real? She was really being followed? Yeah, Devin had a stalker since since high school. Do you have any idea who it is? I don't have a name. Devon used to call him her groupie. So did you ever see the van yourself? Yeah, yep. I saw it a few times. But you didn't see who was inside? No, the van has, like, these crazy tinted windows. And this had been happening since high school? Yeah. And it wasn't your brother? No, dude. My brother spent some time in jail while we were in school, and it was still happening, so there's no way it could be John. It wasn't him. Did did Devin know who it was? Sometimes I think she did know. She was kind of weird about him. Like she didn't mind. She wasn't afraid of him? No, not at all. She would joke about him all the time. Like if she ever needed anything, she'd say, I'll just ask my groupie to get it for him. And he would? Sometimes, yeah. I remember this one time she broke her phone. She was riding her bike and she fell off and it, it shattered in her pocket. The next day, there was a brand new phone on her doorstep was freaky and did she use that phone yeah it was a a brand new iphone 6 that's the phone she had when she went missing do you think this guy could have something to do with devin's disappearance i mean i don't know maybe he never seemed like a threat though you know he was just obsessed and creepy but been following her around for years so why now what do you think happened to devin honestly i think she just just walked away Really? Just left her mother behind? Look, nobody else will say this about Patty, but I will. Patty was a piece of fucking shit, okay? She was drunk for Devin's entire childhood. You think Devin's been taking care of her mom just since she got sick? She's been taking care of her mom since she was seven.
0: Fuck. I didn't realize it was that bad.
3: Yeah, it was that bad and worse. It's a miracle that she got out of that house alive, got into a good college... Didn't get sucked into drugs and alcohol like everyone else in her life. So, you think she regretted moving back to Emmett? Absolutely. She hated this town. She couldn't wait for her mom to die so she could split town again without her older brother guilt tripping her.
0: Her brother was pressuring her to be Patty's caregiver?
3: Yeah. He felt like he was contributing enough financially, so he left Devon to do all the dirty work. It was too cheap to hire a, a home health care worker, so he just guilt tripped Devon into doing it all. Jeez.
0: I have to say, none of this sounds like the Devon that I've heard about before. Everyone else I've talked to makes Devon out to be this devoted daughter who wanted to see out her mother's final days
3: with her. That may have been the image she presented to the world, but that couldn't be farther from the truth.
0: My conversation with Isaac went on for another 20 minutes. Mostly with him reaming into me for outing him to his religious family, who didn't take it well and told him to start looking for somewhere else to live. And, honestly, I deserved it. I was starting to question my role in this case. Despite Brett's warnings, maybe I had jumped to conclusions too quickly. I didn't stop to consider how this podcast might impact the lives of the people around Devon. Still, if I hadn't found out that Isaac was on Grinder, he may have never decided to talk to me, and we never would have found out that Devon did have a stalker. By the way, Isaac sent me proof that he did indeed meet with a guy from Grinder in Garden Valley the night of February 9th. And after reaching out to him, he was able to confirm that Isaac spent the night, but practically begged me not to release his name on the podcast, which I won't. I've already caused enough damage. With Isaac in the clear, this case may have just lost our number 1 suspect, but we finally got a new lead to follow. A stalker that had been tracking Devon for years. Hi, Kenny. Hi, Jessica. This is Paula from Nashville. I just wanted to let y'all know that I'm loving the podcast so far, and I think the case is really compelling. Now, the other reason for my call is that after replaying episode one, I noticed that the 911 caller, you know, the, the caller who called in to report Devin's car abandoned, this sounds like the same caller who called to complain in episode two. I could be wrong, but I just thought it might be something y'all might want to check out. Thanks so much.
1: Um, yes, I'd like to report
0: a vehicle. No, um, it's just a vehicle. I, I think it's been abandoned. Yes, um, Forced Service Road 698. Forest Service Road 698.
1: You guys are wasting your fucking time I mean, What a joke. You're not even real investigators. Just a douchebag with a voice recorder. If she wants to go missing, I can't let her. Because I've got some news for you. She obviously doesn't want to be found. So just leave her alone. So just leave her alone. Forced Service Road 698. So just leave her alone.
0: Holy shit.
1: Do you hear that? It's the same voice.
0: Yeah, it's exactly the same.
1: There's no way that this is a coincidence. He had to have known it was Devin's car.
0: Do you think this guy is Devin's stalker?
1: I don't know. Should we call him?
0: Yeah, I mean, we can try. Hey, this is Garrett. Hi, uh, this is Kenneth Bailey. I'm the host of the Dead in the Night podcast. Oh, oh yeah. No, I was wondering when you guys would find me. That's it for this episode of Dead of the Night Podcast. Thank you for listening, and if you liked what you heard, please subscribe and leave a review. And of course, if you have any information about Devin Riesling, please call 208-398-3110. This episode was produced by Gina Harris, Spencer Hudson, and Danielle Choda. Jessica O'Neill is our audio engineer. I'm Kenneth Bailey, asking once again, have you seen Devon Riesling?